You know what pisses me off about genre is that I feel like people project their own biases onto musical genres. Biases about time, about uh, nationalities. That's why we often mix up genre with nationality, with country, or with time. Like, we've made 80s music a genre when it's just, like, a period of time. I can't argue with that. Yeah. It becomes sort of like 70s, whatever, 80s, whatever. And at the same time, I remember doing a project for a class this past semester and thinking of writing a list down of all the different artists going on in the 1970s from Van Halen to early rap to disco and just going like, what was going on in this time? But genre is, I don't know, useful to who? Like, why is it a thing anyway? I know coming from early like the record industry, uh, the distinction between country music and blues was completely arbitrary and on race lines. Mm. So those are two genres that basically define at least American pop music. So what exactly does the purpose of the genre serve? I mean, it's definitely one of those things that I use exorbitantly, but I'm also against as a concept and as a way to distinguish things. Like, I feel like, you know, on a micro level, like when you're having a conversation, it's way easier to describe a record as this is a pop record or whatever. It's just, it's just convenient. Yeah. Are you a fan of subgenres? Definitely. But I do think that the people, the artists involved in those subgenres, I would guess that they don't like being classified into such a restrictive and niche label. I don't know. If I were an artist, I would like for people to recognize how I can change. I do think one genre, though, that the masses recognize the range of is pop, just because its very definition doesn't connote a certain sound. It just means that a lot of people like it. I once Googled pop music and it had like 18 different genres in it, according to Google at least. Yeah. And another thing I find interesting is how pop music changes over time. Like, you know, nowadays we have a relatively set definition of what pop is, what contemporary pop is. But when we look at technically pop from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, we don't classify that as pop anymore, even though that's what it was at the time. On this episode of A-Side, B-Side, we're going to be talking about genres and how far we can stretch genres in the definition. And for my uh, genre, I chose pop. And for my albums, I picked out two albums that I loved from 2019. My Finest Work Yet by Andrew Bird and Pony by Rex Orange County. What did you think? So I'll start with Andrew Bird first. My first impression is that his voice is eerily similar to Father John Misty. (laughs) And I felt like I was listening to Father John Misty the whole time. And I had to keep reminding myself that this is another guy. 
Had you listened to Andrew Bird before? No, I haven't actually. And I, I know I've heard of, I think I've heard of him, but I have a few questions about him. You know that generation of late 2000s, 2010s alternative music that's like Young the Giant, Vampire Weekend, Bombay Bicycle Club type of thing? Yeah, the, all the I music like, that we playing in athletic clubs and gyms all the time. Coldplay <laughs> is part of that. Yeah, very, I think, amazing time for music. Phoenix, was he one of the founding fathers of that movement, would you say? I would say no, because I think those are all rock-driven pop music. Very simple, big, catchy, hooky choruses. His music is a lot more, like, it tries to definitely be a little more quirky than that, or I hate that word quirky, but definitely tries to be more clever. Yeah. Sort of hiding the melody, because his, I would definitely classify his music as as pop because it, it's so pleasant to listen to, I think. But he sort of hides it behind this clever and, and esoteric lyricism and uh, instrumentation. His violin is his primary instrument. He, he plucks it, he plays it like a traditional violin, mm. uh, which makes it very different from other pop that's going on, I think, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. It's interesting that you say he hides the melodies because... I noticed that, for example, for, you know, the string section of a certain song, he would find a melody that's really very moving and really catchy. And he would grab onto that and like play it over and over, but not in a way that's, you know, obvious or drawing to your ear. So I feel like he makes the song catchy and technically pop in kind of a subversive way. He makes you intuitively think the song is really melodic or catchy um, without following a formula. Yeah, I think Sisyphus, the first song on the album, or the first single, is a really good example of that, where it's it's like a whistling hook, which he does often. And it's I think it's definitely the most pop song because it's the most straightforward, but it's not A part chorus, B part chorus. It's all kind of all over the place. Every track is soundtrack caliber. Every track could be on a movie. And I think the way he kind of layers his instruments, layers his voice, layers other people's voices, whistling is really something to be admired. And another thing that I noted was how unpredictable his music is. Like, it's very catchy again, but... I wouldn't ever be able to kind of follow it or sing along to it just because it's very unpredictable. He changes time signatures. He shifts tones very rapidly within songs. Yeah, he's not an artist that you want to try to cover. Yeah, totally. Have you been listening to him since he was an early earlier on? No, I heard the first time I heard Andrew Bird was I was driving... And he was on NPR, I think, late at night. And they were playing this song, Pulaski at Night. Mm. I was thinking, like, wow, that's an amazing song. So I, I remembered a couple of lyrics and looked them up later. Yeah. And that was my first introduction to Bird. And then when I got to Bachelor, I met people who really liked him. And him and I think Fiona Apple are two big 
lyrical giants of the 2000s. And I think they have both found their niche and a big subset of that is faster people. So have you listened to his albums from like the early 2000s? Uh, yeah, like Mysterious Production of Eggs is also a really, really good album. How has he changed? I, I would assume that like, you know, um, my finest work yet is more crisp than the earlier albums, but has he taken any significant changes? No, I think he's completely the same. As a fan, I would love that. You think so? Well, that goes back to what our last episode was about. Yeah, yeah I think he's the same The same ethos that informed his last few albums have informed this for sure. I think his strain... I'm not saying that he's like anyone else because he's, he's not, but I think his strain of, like, like you said, esoteric lyricism... Um, layering instruments and folk atmosphere, folk vibe is very much in vogue right now. Like you see people like Father John Misty, Alex G kind of using folk as a foundation for going pretty nuts with the instrumentation in their songs. And they're also not worried about like holding back when it comes to lyrics. Yeah. And I think what Andrew Bird and my other album, Pony by Rex Orange County, both do is they have interesting lyrical content and and I would define them as pop music. And yeah, this is where this does get a little, like there's a little bit of pretension in this podcast, but it's definitely the, it's what I wish pop music sounded like because it's, it shows you that, that you can have interesting lyrical content and really melodic, easy to listen to, great to listen to pop music, and it works. And I don't know why it doesn't have a bigger audience. Dude, Pony by Rex Orange County was... It was just fantastic. They, they actually kind of... The two albums... Um, Andrew Bird and Pony, they kind of remind me of each other in that they're very easy, easy listening, like you said, but I totally, I cannot predict where the songs will go. Like they just, they go nuts with the, with the tempo, with tone. It'll sound like merge two songs together. And all the while, it's still a very pleasant listening experience. No, Pony is is much more like an electronic album, much more more jazzy, I think. And I mean, Rex Orange County is, I think he's like, gotta be twenty one, maybe. So it's wow. it's cool. It's cool to hear um, a young artist like him um, change. I think a lot from his his earlier stuff, like um, Apricot Princess, and his work with Tyler, the creator. Mm-hmm. And he's got being like on the younger side. He's got the lyrical content that I think in a kind of cringy way, almost mm-hmm. like relates to people our age or probably younger. Yeah. Like he says things that otherwise you'd probably be too embarrassed to say he's a vulnerable boy. But yeah. He's a sad boy. Yeah, definitely. His last couple albums were self-produced, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate how, like, now that he's, you know, gotten more popular and I'm sure he has more resources, um, more connections, he's really taken advantage of those resources. Like, 
you know, you could see him dabbling in jazz, in synths, in past albums, but he really did not hold back for this one. Like, I feel like almost even more so than his his vocals, the the instruments and experimentation on that front was the forefront of this album, at least for me. Yeah, I think it's one of those um, albums that can, I think you can play basically on a keyboard the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Always 10 out of 10. Those are just keyboard-based songs. And he's got the lyrical side to the sort of boot in this album. Like, it gets better. It's not the same anymore. Never had the balls. Like, those are all titles for songs in this album, which is like almost like cringily targeted towards a certain audience, yeah. certain demographic for sure. The albums that you picked may or may not be targeted towards a certain age. Definitely, I'd say one of these albums is dad music or boomer music maybe even. Yes, it's an iconic duo, Tears for Fears, and their most popular album, their sophomore album, Songs from the Big Chair, which was released in 1985. And what... Surprises, I don't what always jars me when I think about 80s music, especially in the UK, is how I feel like the popular preference for music has never taken such a big step as in very general terms between the 70s and the 80s. Like, if you think about especially the UK in the 70s and the 80s, like if you think about like 70s rock, punk, and then this wave of since in by the mid 80s it's like what did people think about this change i feel like i don't know one of my theories is that all these damn synths were a reaction to some of the most popular musical movements in the 70s like i don't know i feel like perhaps people got bored of punk because punk is so repetitive and quite simple like a rebellion from punk yeah so so um perhaps people that were better producers or um kind of itched to make more complex music started incorporating electronic sounds in their music and really um championing complex layered songs like we see from tears for fears Yeah, and it gets back to what we were talking about right when we started this, was things get grouped up so arbitrarily by decade. And I would say that the same people who listen to the 70s pop music, pop punk music, like The Clash, also listen to Tears for Fears. And I know that because my dad listens to both while he cleans up the kitchen. (laughs) So from an audience perspective music from the big chair and or like joy division things like that all sort of have the same audience i think yeah it could not be more different sounding but i think joy division what what do they say joy division is it's like post-punk yeah so me call that new wave right yeah which is you know just another problem with labels like you can't really identify a, a sound with a with a name um, for that general period of music. And, you know, when I say that 80s 
pop or 80s synth pop was more complex than what occurred in the 70s like that's not true at all like you know you have electric light orchestra their songs are very complex um with with many layers but i i'm just like a huge tears for fears fan i really am i just think the the best selling singles from this album are just some of the best pop songs to ever be released. I agree. I totally agree. And I didn't, I didn't realize that all of these songs were on the same album, honestly, because I think of all of, all of those like 80s new wave post-punk bands as being like, I don't know, all the same thing. Like the band that made Don't You Forget About Me also may have made Transmission, Transmission also may have made... Um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which is on this album. Uh, as soon as I, I was not expecting, I, I thought this album, from just from the name of the, of the band, Tears for Fears, I thought for sure it was going to be like a mid-90s like emo band. And I didn't realize that I've heard three of these songs like a thousand times. Uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout, and Head Over Heels. So many bangers on this album. Amazing. And you could tell they're just like music nerds even though this happened to be a best-selling record, like, you know, a lot of the tracks on this album are just them, it sounds like, fucking around in the studio, which I really appreciate and which can be heard even on the more melodic and popular songs. And also the lyrics are very weird, kind of, and a little bit dark. But another genre, I guess, of music that is not particularly defined by a sound is city pop, um, which is a Japanese thing. And, you know, again, it's not so much a group of music that sounds similar, but a generation of artists that kind of uh, circuited around each other and, and collaborated and stuff. And it emerged in the 70s. And I read this article by a guy named Ed Cunningham, who writes about uh, Japanese music history, contemporary Japanese music history. And he said that the closest thing that contemporary Japanese music came to a watershed was this album by a folk rock group named Happy End. And they were the first guys to sing really American-sounding music in the Japanese language. And before that, there had been kind of this conflict between, oh, like, here's, like, traditional Japanese music that you need to sing, like, this way in, like, a ballad-type style. And then there's, like, Western music, blues, R&B, what have you, that you need to sing in English. And before that, no one had ever kind of merged the two. And I guess city pop was the first popular manifestation of, you know, taking all these genres from America, from um, African-American music, like R&B, disco, funk, and singing them in Japanese. And I guess the king, if you will, of city pop was Tatsuro Yamashita. And for the second album, I picked a compilation album that was released in 1984. It's called Come Along. And although, you know, some of these songs are from the 70s, um, I think this is a very 
it's a good sample of of his thing um, at the peak of his career. And I was wondering what you thought of such a, a niche uh, group of music. Yeah, I I really like doing this podcast because I definitely would have never listened to this album, not because it's a Japanese album or not because it's a disco album, but because it's a Japanese disco album. Yeah. <laughs> and I just have no idea how I ever would have come across that. I wouldn't say this is like the type of music that I seek out and the music that sounds like this. I couldn't really tell you much about disco anyway, but I I love the like earnestness and just the the sort of reverence for ballads in this in this album and you can definitely see that Tatsuro Yamashita totally has a reference for that and it's just a fun album to listen to. Mm. I don't know. And and especially if you if you look up the YouTube version of this, there's like a really cringy DJ dude um using every song and it's almost like a, a spoof. It's perfect. And he just he's like the album incarnate. It's definitely cheesy, corny music about, like, summer and love and the sun and let's kiss the sun. But I, I think I, the thing I love the most about it is, ostensibly, it's really corny pop music. You know, like my mom said, you used to listen to this when you went to the beach with your friends. And, you know, it's not, it's easily easy listening, but he is insane at producing and arranging his music and it's like really complex music again it's the way he layers his voice you know how he recruits musicians you know his first couple albums are noticeably more stripped back and simple than his later ones because he just kind of wanted to make his music very big in terms of the instruments so I really appreciate that about him some definitely bangers that stood out to me on this album were Bomber with there's a really sick guitar solo it totally it it definitely misled me because I when I heard that I was like this is gonna be kind of like progressive rock album and then it goes in a total different different direction (laughs) and slider and let's kiss the sun are like just super sugary like yeah. disco records, which I mean, I, like everyone has to like those. Yeah, and what's great is that this album, this genre, I guess, is seeing a resurgence because of the YouTube algorithm. Like for <laughs> some reason, YouTube keeps recommending people city pop music. I guess the most notable song example of this is "Plastic Love" by Maria Takeuchi, who's actually. <laughs> Tatsuro Yamashita's wife. They got oh. married. And I don't know for, and you know, there's a lot of hip hop artists kind of sampling city pop records. American, um, American hip hop artists? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I know the popular attention has kind of returned. Like in Japan and overseas has kind of gone back to city pop, which I, I love to see. Um, I don't think I would have got back into it if YouTube had not encouraged me to do so. I think the idea of City Pop brings up somewhere where I kind of wanted to go with this episode, which is how artists approach genres. 
and then therefore how the audience approaches that artist. And I think either the best artists, which in my opinion are people like Andrew Bird and Tatsuri Yamashita, I think they either confuse genres or they make their own, or basically they, they force critics to make a new genre, like city pop. People try to call Andrew Bird like Baroque pop, something folk pop, any, anything like that. And it's just like, what? That's like, well, people don't even know what Baroque means. I don't know. I barely know what Baroque means. It's like, I think of 18th century France. Yeah. And Andrew Bird does not remind me of 18th century France. I don't know. So, what do you think of artists being able to make their new genres? And is that, is that a mark of a, of a truly talented artist? In your opinion? I, I do think so. I totally agree with you. I think, and I think part of that um, innovation of a new genre is kind of taking the conventions of an already established genre um, or music that has proven itself to be popular and kind of turning it on its head. Like, for example, I feel like Pony by Rex Orange County, just as he's not afraid to experiment a lot with the instrumentation and with stuff you wouldn't generally see in pop music, he's also not afraid to use as conventions, like clapping, really melodic, uh, chorus. Yeah, auto-tune, pitching his voice up, pitching it down. And I think here's where the similarities to City Pop begin to emerge because a lot of what that generation of music was was taking Westerners' kind of perception of, of Eastern music in the form of exotica and turning it on its head. Like, there's this one kind of collaboration album that Yamashita was involved in called Pacific with these other really popular um, musicians from the time. And it was basically the concept for the album was exotic people, Easterners making exotica music, which had before then been, you know, like Westerners conception of what uh, foreign music was. So it's, I, I feel like it's this kind of, um, self-awareness and like knowing what pop is, for example, and and consciously making it different while also um, incorporating these pop conventions that, you know, make a pop artist so good. Yeah. What, what does pop music mean to you? Because to me, it just means anything that's popular. Man, I don't know. Because... I would, the first uh, the first thing that I thought of was something that's easy to listen to, something that I really enjoy listening to. But I can't even say that because there are music in technically other genres that you would not call pop that I enjoy listening to and that is easy to listen to for me. And, you know, as I am not familiar with music theory. I'm not a musician. I don't know if there's something, you know, sonically going on that classifies something as pop music. But I know, you know, even over time, that hasn't been true. Like the sound of pop music has evolved so much over time. So I really think it's an arbitrary 
Um, not so much arbitrary. I think it describes something really abstract, like a vibe. Yeah. It, I think you can throw pop in front of almost any genre, and it makes sense, because I think of like Green Day as pop punk. Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's very easy to listen to, as like Dua Lipa is. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly hooky, incredibly catchy. Um, sounds similar to other stuff in that genre. And I'd say both of those are where pop music, but they sound super different. But I do think, you know, pop um, in the States or in the UK in the States is totally going through a, it's, it's like, I feel like it's at the beginning of a renaissance with people like Dua Lipa. Like they're really crafty musicians, but they also happen to be like um, popular vocalists, like making catchy tunes. Do you see pop music going in the same, heavily influenced by EDM? I mean, that's what I, that, that could be so wrong, but that's how I feel like where most pop music is going to. Mm. Um, yeah, continuing in that direction, or do you, or do you think it see it changing soon? Because I think the the pattern that a lot of pop songs go with is like very like slow build up and then like boom and like it the second half of the song is all one big beat drop chorus. Yeah. Seems that seems like the last five years it seems to be the formula. Yeah, definitely. You know where we had that few years where like every song in the top ten was like featuring Zed or featuring like with the Chainsmokers or something. Like not shitting on them. Like not, I'm not saying they're bad artists, but like their top, the top songs were like kind of crappy songs with them, where it would just be like someone singing the same thing over and over, and then them like doing their thing after the beat drops. Yeah, I feel like we're moving away from like the the most popular stuff, like Dua Lipa and stuff. I feel like we're moving away from that and more into like funk, actually, like more bass, like really slappy bass type of stuff. Which makes total sense because bass is awesome. Definitely. I'm so happy about that. I was reading um, when I was doing some research for an American history uh, class, I was reading the Piketty Journal. There's this cool article from 69 about um, how uh, they surveyed a bunch of students and they found out that they don't really care about the lyrical content of rock and roll, they just like the beat. Yeah. Which I think is kind of sick. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's just about the beat, what you can dance to. Definitely. I feel like what we can conclude from this is that labels don't matter. Except when artists rewrite them, which is pretty cool. Yes. And pop is nothing.